We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. initiated in 1970, so we're, we're the oldest program uh, west of the Mississippi, the oldest continuously accredited program. Well, hello, and thanks for joining us for episode 63. We are celebrating something here at the podcast. Steph and I had just received notice that we have over 20,000 downloads, and that is a testament to all of you. And uh, we are grateful for you listening and taking the time to learn about the programs, learn about the profession, and spend a little bit of time each week listening to our guests. We're also grateful today to be interviewing Jared Spackman, who's the program director for the University of Utah Physician Assistant Program. Jared's a wonderful leader. He's a wonderful educator and a great human being. And we hope you enjoy the show. Well, Jared, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm uh, really excited. We've been wanting to get you, Pap, on the schedule for a long time. And for whatever reason, we just have, have between talking to Connie and trying to think, well, should Connie come on first? And then you'll think it should we get the legends of the profession on, uh, which I, you know, we're still going to get them on because they've done so much for the PA profession. Of course, speaking of uh, Don and Kathy Peterson, finally, we just had to had to do it. And it wasn't a fear of having Jared Spackman on because you're just yeah. a great, great leader. But, you know, you follow in the footsteps of some real big giants. And there's no question. And yeah. you guys have such an amazing program with incredible faculty that are really committed to the the, the communities of Salt Lake and and, and uh, Utah at large. So uh, so thank you. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. My honor. We um, let's start with uh, our place that we typically do, which is a talk about you first. Okay. So tell us about your path to becoming a PA and how you kind of circumvented the PA world to get to where you are today as well. Yeah, I've got an interesting story. I think my PA journey began when I was in high school, actually. So I've been a PA now for 23 years uh, going back. So I graduated uh, from high school back in the late 80s. And really what inspired me to want to to become a PA was a neighbor. So I had a good neighbor, next door neighbor, who was enrolled at the University of Utah PA program. It was a second career for him. 
And I was just enthralled with what he was learning and what he was doing and had an opportunity to shadow him as a, as a young person and, and learn about the profession. So for me, where, you know, a lot of my peers looked at it as something they discovered as a second profession, it was something that I wanted to do right out of high school because I had this mentor, this, this neighbor. And interestingly enough, uh, he ended up founding a program in Billings, Montana. His name's Bob Bunnell, and he founded Rocky Mountain College in Billings, Montana. And when I was ready to apply, after I had nearly completed my bachelor's degree, I applied to, to, to the University of Utah, and I applied to Rocky Mountain College, and I got into Rocky Mountain College, and I didn't get a sniff from the University of Utah. <laughs> How ironic. So yeah, it's interesting because when I came back to to Utah, I probably had a bit of a chip on my shoulder <laughs> in regards to to the university and sort of looked sideways at the faculty that that were there. But then just yeah. really learned what a what a wonderful program it was as I started to engage in some state academy activities and started to rub shoulders with with those faculty. So I graduated from uh, Rocky Mountain in two thousand and. Uh, began to work clinically. I was actually hired by a pediatric clinic and an orthopedic clinic in the same week, and they were across the hallway from each other. So I've always had at least two clinical jobs as well. Wow. wow. And that, you know, that was really fun and, and uh, probably ended myself a little bit early on as a clinician, you know, working 30 hours a week in pediatrics and 30 hours a week in, in orthopedics, but I was young and didn't need a lot of sleep and a young hard charger back then. The hard charger. That's yeah. right. Wow. And, and that's interesting to me because it just seems to me, and I have no data to back this up, but it's just an, an observational anecdotal story. Like when I started becoming a program director, I think it was in 2005, I started to notice that a lot of grads were doing exactly what you did, kind of having their foot in two different doors. And yeah. I've heard people describe it as, you know, I just have a love for different types of medicine. I've also heard that it's always good to have a backup plan. So so really, what was your motivation to do that and to do it as long as you did? Yeah, you, you know, I think it was that. I I I think one of the other things that you see with with our profession in particular, and also educators is, you know, we have, sometimes we have trouble saying no. So, you know, accepting uh, the idea that, that I could make a difference in more than one place and just wanting to be, you know, when you come out of school, you just feel like, wow, somebody really wants to hire me to do this. And, and that being said, it was a great opportunity. And I, I think for me, it it was just that I really loved orthopedics and I loved pediatrics as well. And it was an opportunity to get a foot in both doors uh, and really has, has benefited me in my career, my, my trajectory as a clinician. And then eventually, you know, as an educator. Yeah. And I imagine talk about getting a foundation in two really common important areas that really are applicable in so many other worlds. So I imagine you found yourself really using those, skills and the knowledge that you gained in those jobs in your jobs that you took on later on. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. You know, opportunities, you know, multiply as they are seized, if you will. So, you know, I've had an opportunity to one, one of the clinical pieces that I still do, I work at a ski clinic up at uh, Brighton ski resort. So in the wintertime, I work several shifts up there and 
snowboard around and they they call me on the radio when someone gets hurt. That's that's because of that orthopedic experience that I was able to to have. I was also fortunate in that I was hired by an orthopedic surgeon who was a generalist. So he was an old school orthopod that did scopes and backs and total joints and so my training in orthopedics was was quite broad, fracture work, you, you know, you name it. So it was a really unique and wonderful opportunity. He was a wonderful teacher. He was a chief resident. Uh, he was a Canadian physician. And I think that's probably where my love of clinical teaching and my love of teaching was sort of fostered as I watched him really take me under his wing. And I was the first PA that he had ever hired. Mm -hmm. And just that really true sort of mentor, supervisor, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it, it was a really wonderful experience learning orthopedics from him. That's a really interesting perspective because the, the clinic I started, I was an internal medicine group and I feel the same way about my original supervising physician. He was a chief resident at Mayo Rochester for internal med. And uh, and then we ended up hiring all chief residents from other Chicago area medical schools um, after that or health systems. And you're right. They're just they've got that teaching thing locked in just those little kind of pearls of wisdom that you could build as you gain confidence and competence. Very much so. And, you know, we're all a reflection of who trained us and that the the idea that you can provide something to someone that they can use for the benefit of patients for the rest of their career is a really sort of powerful enticement to be involved in education and that and and that's what it ended up being for me so i so initially as an educator it was a clinical preceptor so taking students and uh, working with them and i i found that i really enjoyed that i did as well i i think it's really stretched me i did it for about 7 years before i entered academia and uh i mean i i, I had I think one tough student in seven years yeah. and the rest were just like made my life easier, more fun, enjoyable. I, you know, you take them over to the hospital with you to see some cases. They were just so eager. Yeah. And, and, and because we're a near peer profession, I always felt like working with students could really be beneficial down the road to build a, to build connections and to build a network, knowing that they would be working in different places and in different environments and knowing that someone that I trained today, I might be calling for a consult, you know, next year. Sort right. Of so right. Hey, that, that was, that was a great experience as well for that reason. I, I just, I put this out there for any clinicians listening to the podcast. We do occasionally get a few. The other part of this is when I left practice to go into academia, we had a file full of phenomenal students that we had trained that we wanted to recruit. And we ended up getting one of those outstanding students who had rotated with us to come over and work with us in my departure. So I, it's a great way to, to keep your practice flowing in a way that is kind of consistent with what your mindset is. That's right. hundred percent. I know as you as a program director, me as a program director, we're always trying to convince our colleagues that, there is value in doing this. Everybody thinks, uh, you know, that uh, we all do it, but actually only about 25% of PAs teach PA students. If you were going to put in your plug beyond what we've already said, what, what's your usual shtick? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think it's probably similar to many other faculty and program directors. Number one, we all had to receive training at some point. So it's giving back. And I think I understand that there are real pressures for clinicians today that are, that are, 
difficult to navigate, whether it's in the pace of the clinic or the fact that compensation is tied to productivity. Um, burnout is real. I think all of those things are 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 real. I, I think there's a joy in taking students. I think I think having a student can renew you. I think yeah. having a student makes you a better clinician. Yeah. Because you have to think about everything you do because they might ask you. And uh, so you can't really practice medicine in a way. It's all, it, you know, I think we all practice as clinicians when we're on our own in a way where nobody's really checking us. And mm -hmm. so you have to provide the best care. Uh, I think the other thing is, is as you teach clinically, it makes you better clinically. Absolutely. And um, so I think those are the the main things that I like to talk about. And I, you know, I also completely understand it when clinicians are too busy and it's, it's a, it's certainly the business medicine has become more, more business-like and more corporate. And I think that's, that's unfortunate. Uh, both you and I work for academic medical centers. I think one of the challenges of an academic medical center is often the clinical enterprise is run by business people who, who, uh, although we have a teaching mission, they don't necessarily respect that that teaching mission and it, and its role within the university. Yeah, and it can it can make it it can make it really frustrating to to go. Okay, well, here are students that are paying tuition at a teaching university, and I'm having a struggle getting them placed clinically because of all the pressures that are that are put on these clinicians from a from a sort of business and logistical standpoint. Yeah, and I think I think your your description of what you typically tell preceptors, I mean, the MBA folks that are running these health systems need to listen to that because there's a significant cost to bringing in a brand new physician that's not right. been there as part of the culture. Patients hate it. I mean, I can tell you with certainty as a patient at an academic health center that having to start all over with a new neurologist for me is a nightmare. And and so keeping your people and keeping them from being burned out by letting them have a little bit of breathing room and, and be involved in the educational process, it's the right thing to do, but it's also the right thing to do business-wise. That's right. Yeah, yeah I think I, what, what I would love to see is clinics that that where clinicians are running with in with compensation or RVU there should be two RVUs there's an RVU if you're not teaching and there's an RVU if you are teaching yep that RVU is higher if you're teaching so you can so so the clinician does have that breathing space and that time to be able to support the system through training the next generation of clinicians that are going to be working uh, absolutely and you know for me the other part of this is and I recognize you work in one precepting clinic and you've worked in one, but if you have a little bit of extra space, I had three exam rooms that I would rotate between to try to stay on schedule. I saw about 25 patients in an IM practice. That's pretty decent for IM and, and saw, you know, about 10 to 20 at the hospital, depending on admissions and things. The reality is with a student, I can have that student starting with a patient that's, you know, I know is going to love to have some attention. While I get through a couple others really quick that don't need that, then I check in with the student on the one that needs more love and attention and conversation, a lonely person, perhaps. And then I'll get two more done while they're writing up the note for that patient who's not in a hurry. And then we keep doing that. So that patient, that student sees maybe six to eight cases in the day that are meaningful. And, uh, and I'm still seeing my 25. That's exactly right. I, you know, my, my feeling is the students always may, and for the most part, make your day better. 
And um, because of that, you, you can turn them loose in a room and you can work around them and they can provide excellent care uh, and be on that team. And you can go in and, and work with them and, you know, you can set it up where it can be very beneficial. So I think that's, a, that's exactly it. That's another pitch that I think is a good one. Yeah. Being willing to train. In the hospital setting, I would say, why don't you go up to the fifth floor and do an H&P on Mr. So-and-so and I'll be up in about an hour. You have an hour to get that started. And then I'd go run through two cases and then get up there and see him do that one. Then say, okay, now go do uh, finish the notes and then go do this on that guy. Yeah. I mean, it's just how you utilize those students. And I remember Noel Lee, who was my family physician preceptor at a rural clinic in the Western part of Illinois, who on the very first day gave me a chart on the very first patient said, just go see the patient. Yeah. And there is something about that learning where you're under that pressure to just like dive in. Yep. It's, it doesn't, they don't have to follow you around for weeks and weeks before you let them go. Oh, that's, that's right. I think about all the early clinical experiences we give our students. And in, in my program, there were no early clinical experiences. It was straight up didactic. So I still remember my first day and rotations with Dr. Etchart. He was an old Basque uh, internal medicine physician uh, in Billings, Montana. And I, I show up and, you know, the clinic smells like coffee. I can remember it like it was yesterday. <laughs> walking in. He says, Jared, good morning. And I tell him good morning. He says, you know, I've got a patient uh, who, who was just taken from the nursing home to the ER. Why don't you go down there and see if you can look him over and get him admitted and I'll be down there in a while. Now, I've never laid hands on a patient. I just remember getting in my car and driving down to uh, St. Vincent's in Billings, Montana, and sitting there in the ER. And, and this was a patient who had dementia and neurosepsis and was laying there in one of the exam rooms in the ER. And he had a very thick patient chart. And I just remember sitting there at the desk with the chart, sort of not knowing what to do, uh, <laughs> trying my best. And an ER nurse is watching me out of the corner of her eye. And, uh, I turned to her and I said, both you and I both know that I don't know what I'm doing. Will you help me? <laughs> <laughs> and by the time he showed up, we, we had this patient on the way to the floor and he was amazed. And, and it, it didn't have anything to do with what I knew. Uh, what it had to do with is my willingness to show humility and ask for help. Humility. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we've all had those kind of situations. Like I remember clearly as a PA student having a chart out at a hospital and and starting to read through this, like my first hospital chart and some doctor comes by who's taking care of the patients. Like I need the chart. And I didn't know what to do. Like, but wait a minute. I'm my doctor told me I had to do this. <laughs> and you know, of course the right answer is yes, sir. Here you go. Yeah. And then you go find something to do and go back and finish up when they're done. But yeah, it's you, a, you thought maybe you had to arm wrestle them over it. <laughs> I wasn't sure to be honest. I really wasn't sure. Yeah. So or I remember one time as a brand new PA, I had to go back to the hospital after it was a Thursday and I had to go back after my patients in the clinic because I we had an admission that I had to go see. And I'm out at the nurse's station. It's like 8 p.m. There's nobody around. The, the lights are now at that point where they're dark in the hallways because they're trying to let people start to get into sleep. And the nurse comes running in saying, doctor, doctor, come quick. And and I'm like, but I'm not a doctor. <laughs> That's right. But you were available. I was available and it was, it's so interesting. I mean, I won't bore you with this too long, but essentially a woman was choking on her dinner Wow! and they, they had tried to Heimlich her standing her up and they, and it was an elderly woman and they could not get her to start breathing properly. 
I mean, these nurses, they're pros, right? So here I am, a brand new PA, and I'm like, well, let's lay her down. We lay her down on the bed. I straddle her in the, you know, the old-fashioned way of trying the epigastric thrust, and we it worked. Thank God it worked. But the, the, the woman's daughter walks in as I'm straddling her, trying to heimlich her, and it turned out that she was a nurse. Yeah. And she was a nurse for a local pediatrician, and I had a six-month-old son at home that was going to that doctor's office. And after that time of saving that woman's life, serendipitously, we had like the red carpet treatment to the doctor's office forever. Yay, Lo Henry to the rescue. Yeah, yeah. You just uh, you just never know when you're going to show up and hopefully you learned enough to, to do the right thing. That's right. That's amazing. Well, okay. So so you uh, you were in peds and ortho um, and sports med. But talk about we can go on a whole nother tangent on the job that you're doing up in the mountain. That's That's pretty cool. Yeah. But you also have done migrant farm health, internal meds. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So when the when the orthopedic surgeon retired, he retired uh, in the mid 2000s. Then you know, once again, I'm working in peds, but I'm looking for something to fill that other that other part, and ended up working in internal medicine uh, once again for a primary care, well, so a primary care internal medicine family medicine uh, physician um, in Salt Lake City. And continued in peds and internal medicine basically up until the time that I was I was hired by University of Utah PA program. So the way the way that sort of happened, uh, because as I told you, I was, you know, maybe a little jaundiced towards the program. Yeah. Um, I I was involved in the state academy, and you know, I believe that PA should be involved in their constituent organizations and should try and make a difference in terms of the profession as well. And uh, I was the president of the academy for that year, and the legislative chair was Dave Cahey. So oh, Dave Cahey. Dave Cahey. So Dave became my mentor as it pertains to the program. We both went to Washington, D.C. for what was used to be called core training. I don't know if you remember that or not, but it was basically sort of constituency training and governmental relations. And we went on some congressional visits together. And I guess during that process, Dave decided I might I might be worth, you know, investing in a little bit. So uh, another look from the University of Utah. That's right. You know, maybe he felt like they they, they might have you know, they might have uh, overlooked me, I don't know. And so the University of Utah has a program where we utilize what we call clinical associates. So these are practicing clinicians that work with the students in groups of four to teach them physical exam, diagnosis, and clinical decision making. And he asked me if I would be one of the clinical associates, and that's how I became associated with the program. I did that for a year, and then a faculty position came open. So that was my journey into the program, if if you will. So the migrant farm piece is part of our work here at the program. And uh, our the University of Utah Position Assistant Program, sometimes we're called a MedEx program. Yeah. So we share some of the same heritage as the University of Washington and some of the other MedEx programs that were, uh, that's short for medical extender, and it's related to sort of the early PA mission where military corpsmen primarily were the substrate for for programs. And so our program was a grant-funded program in the beginning. The whole thing was 15 months. Uh, it was military corpsmen. It, the program was initiated in 1970, so we're, we're the oldest program uh, west of the Mississippi, the oldest continuously accredited program. Uh, Very good. 
west of the Mississippi. And our mission has always been primary care and underserved. Of course, the program has evolved. It's gone from a certificate program to a to a master's program. But what you know, the values that the program holds uh, to itself and holds dear have remained, which is primary care and underserved. And so part of that is, is that we we like to do a lot of community engagement. I know the program you came from, USC, was was a program that was similar in that fashion, that a connection to the community. Yeah. And one of the big community partners uh, we have is uh, the CHC clinics, the community health clinics, where, you know, they're a safety net organization and they have a farm worker grant. So, in conjunction with that grant, we provide care not only to migrant farm workers, but their children. That's fantastic. It's been amazing. So you get a chance to use your pediatrics in that role quite a bit then, it sounds like. We do. So we go to a variety of uh, Head Start facilities here um, that are that are in rural places off the Wasatch Front, and our students have an opportunity to perform annual physical exam screenings, uh, hemoglobin, lead, fluoride varnish, and, and our students are able to learn some principles of doing a pediatric exam and, and well checks, and they learn the vaccine schedule, and they have an opportunity to work with these beautiful children. Wow, and what a tremendous way for you to support, you know, one of the biggest aspects of Utah is the agriculture, and, you know, those farmers, I'm sure, have come to rely on you helping out their team members that are there helping them in these kind of critical farming cycles where they need all the extra hands on board. Very much so. Uh, in the fall, we get to go out during the harvest and we get to do outreach where we do screening, you know, diabetes and and hypertension screening, flu shots and COVID shots and 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 varnish to uh, migrant farm workers that are working in the in the fields. And that's that's a really amazing experience where we get to see their kids in the spring and we get to we get to visit with them in the fall. Wow. That's that's great. So and and of course, University of Utah's PA school has was the only school in Utah for for a very long time until probably the last what five six years. Yeah, I say we I say we had a forty five year head start on all the other programs. <laughs> I wish that was the case at U of A. I've got yeah. five partners in Phoenix that are breathing down our necks down here. So they were here first. I we're we're I'm sure they're not happy that we're here, but um, yeah, that's that's an amazing head start. Yeah, I would um, I would tell you that we've been very excited as we've watched these additional programs develop and we've wanted to partner with them. And two of the three are state schools. So Weber State and Utah Valley University. And both of those programs are headed by um, folks that were either faculty at our program or alumni of our program. So nice. Um, you know, nice. so it probably has a very similar feel. Yeah. 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 Good for you guys. That's amazing. That's not to say that clinical training isn't competitive, but yeah. it, it's 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 a tough environment out there. But we're excited that they're they're up and going, and there's a need here. Yeah, so I and mean, we experience this in Arizona. There's a a huge shortage of primary care providers here. You know, in, in PT and PA, over ninety percent of the providers are in the urban centers, not in the rural communities. And of course, our rural communities and our indigenous communities suffer. Greatly. So yeah, almost to the point of similar to third world work when you're doing mission work in South and Central America in terms of the kind of pathology you see. Yeah, I, I believe it. You know, we have a we, we have a pretty good clinical footprint in the four corners area, which I think is pro is is shared territory, if you will. We have yeah. we have a couple of graduates down there, including some DNA graduates that that work in Monument Valley and and 
and you know the pandemic was really really terrible uh, yeah devastated it was devastating to that area and those pas and clinicians down there just did heroic work during that period they did they did i've got an sc grad there Mm -hmm. who was the chief of staff for a little while at the the main hospital in um, chinley Chinley. okay yeah 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 and so you know to hear their stories of what was going on and how they they actually turned the tide as a team really well. Their outcomes are so much better than they were. So harrowing and uh, just a remarkable work. Yeah, yeah, done there. Well, let, let's uh, let's kind of shift a little bit because you've been on the faculty at University of Utah. You became the program director in 2018, right before the pandemic. That's what right. A, what a you had a two-year head start. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Talk about stress, man. Wow, that was a rough couple of years. What's it been like for you? How have you enjoyed it so far? Well, you know, I think in many cases, program directors become program directors, not for the reason that other people think they might. In in my case, you know, we had a sudden change in leadership and it wasn't something that I was looking to achieve, but it was it was a situation where I really love our program and I really love our students and our staff and our faculty. And I felt like I could step in and make a difference. And I could, and, and really with a program like this, it's like, just don't crash the Lamborghini, right? Like try and, <laughs> um, try and live up to what folks have done in the past. And yeah, yeah. it's a tall order. Well, and let's talk, a li- let's talk a little bit about that rich history. Cause I think not everybody understands what the university of Utah has been about and the kind of leadership that has come from that institution and impacted the profession both at the state level, the national level, but also internationally as well. So can you just give us a glimpse into the history before we talk about specifics about the school? Yeah, certainly so. So so the founding director of the program um, was Dr. Wilson, essentially, um, and Hillman Castle, who was a physician who trained in at Duke under uh, Eugene Stead was sort of the founding department chair for the University of Utah. And that's, that's one of the reasons why the program had its had its roots as early as it did. Um, most folks who who know a lot about the program, it, it sort of starts and in some cases ends with Don Peterson. So Don Peterson was uh, the director of the program for over 25 years. Uh, he's sort of a legendary uh, educator and researcher and um you know, the PAEA journal, which, uh, you know, much of the education research is published in for our profession. He was one of the founding editors of that publication. He he was uh, one of the first, uh, he was the first PA within the University of Utah School of Medicine to reach the full professor rank and served on national committees and just was just legendary. So we call him the Don for a reason. <laughs> That's awesome. And he really put together a wonderful and long-lived team of faculty. So Connie Golgar, who I know you've worked closely with over time, really a um, expert in uh, evidence-based medicine and genetics. Uh, was- and actually an award winner, right? She, she received one of the highest awards 
uh, related to the genetics organizations for her work. She did. It's called a Scotty Award. So she was recognized for her work in terms of creating modules that could be integrated into PA education that have genetic content within it. Uh, she was a president of uh, the PAEA um, education organization. And uh, her and Dave Cahey, who was, who was my mentor, uh, were just stalwart faculty members. Dave Cahey, longtime faculty member, just a clinician extraordinaire mission to the core. Uh, he was a Robert Wood Johnson fellow. I think only the second PA second that one. was ever yeah. a fellow. That's right. Um, had a great deal of influence in terms of national legislative efforts and uh, HRSA funding. He uh, and, you know, concluded his career working for PAEA and their government relations. And, and uh, so if I'm not mistaken, Dave actually was part of the he's part of Senator Smith's staff, Chris Smith from Connecticut, and he helped write uh, some of the opioid uh, and naloxone legislation for us. You are correct. And yeah. he you know, he was essentially when legislation is crafted, he was in a position to insert our profession into the conversation. And that is a sort of rare and unique skill and ability that that he fostered through that fellowship and through his influence and his excellence. So so these are the folks who walk up and down our hallways still that yeah, yeah. And say, hey Jared, how's the program going? And you know, we get to we get to keep it afloat. The interesting thing is, is we have been able to, you know, during that time where these faculty that have been here for a long period of time is have retired, we've really been able to bring on new, energetic, mission-focused, excellent faculty. And I couldn't be more thrilled with the group of folks that we have here at the university. That's fantastic. You've got really strong research, as I recall, from Jenny Combs. Mm -hmm. um, you've got uh, just amazing clinical education leadership from Amanda Maloney-Johns. She is a phenomenal associate program director and director of our of, of our clinical side of the house. Uh, Sean Curran, who's our didactic director, is wonderful. Joe Rolls, who um, is really pioneering uh, a lot of research and education content in the space of transgender health. Nice. There, there's been a, a lot of, we have a lot of remarkable folks here that are doing great things. Yeah, Darren and all his diversity work that he does. The heart and soul of our program. Uh, and, you know, our program has become, you know, Utah is not the most diverse state uh, in, in terms of our demographics. One of the goals that we have is population, at least having population parity within our program, which can be hard to achieve in national, you know, PA demographics would, would back that up. We just admitted, uh, and they showed up this week, the most diverse class we have ever had, 47% diversity here Congrats. in Lake City, Utah. It's wonderful. That's, that is fantastic. And what a great place to learn. So so um, I guess let's let's talk about the application process, because I think your school has been involved in CASPA forever, and, yes. and you got great leadership and admissions. How do we help the future applicants of UPAP have a different uh, success story than you. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, first things they, you know, I think engaging with the resources that are available to learn about the program is really critical. So our admissions coordinator, uh, Doris Dalton, is fantastic. And she's sort of a CASPA guru. You know, she was one yeah. of the early adopters. Sure. 
But, you know, we run a lot of information sessions so folks can learn about our program and uh, learn about what would enhance their qualifications, enhance their their chances of getting an interview. And I think for for any student who's looking at a program, certainly looking at, at the website and making sure you're familiar with the, the mission, the faculty, the uh, admissions requirements, you know, that's all sort of no brainer kind of stuff. But I think really looking at those admission criteria, you know, we're accreditation mandated like every other program to to essentially disclose what what it is that we utilize in order to select candidates. You know, I, I think our program is somewhat unique in that because we are very mission based. There are some programs I think that have a mission, but you'd probably have to ask the faculty to look it up to know what it is. <laughs> and, and I don't, I don't mean that in an uncomplimentary way. I just think that there's a difference. There's a difference. Walk the walk. That's right. Some missions are are more generic and more just related to education. And there are some programs where they don't have institutional support for their mission. Right. We're, we're a program where, you know, all those things are, are aligned and, if, if you want to come to the University of Utah, I think you want to know about our mission. But more than that, you have to be on board with our mission because we're not going to back away from it. If, it, if it's not your cup of tea, then it's it, it could be a long 27 months. But if it is your cup of tea, it is it will be a joyful time that you're here. Uh, and so I think knowing that, understanding that is is really important. My sense of programs like yours, the alignment with the mission and demonstration that in your application that you can prove that you've walked that walk, that it is serious for you, that you've been doing it for a while. It's not just a checkbox that you try to get. Probably is even more important than grades. I mean, grades are important. You got to prove that you can make it. But is is that true for you as well? I would say so. And, you know, because of our, because of our, our history and our sort of our culture, we, you know, we're not looking to select the, you know, 68 best test takers. Um, you know, you have to be viable as a as a PA student. You have to be able to withstand the rigors of the education. It's yeah. tough. And passing the boards isn't getting any easier. Yeah. But at the same time, um, academic strength is is one dimension, but it is not the only dimension. And I think for our program, you could safely say it's not the the most important dimension. It is, it, but it is important. So one of the things that we look at is distance traveled as well. If you're born on third base, um, you know that it, it may not be as difficult to achieve that 3.9, right? As that is that person who might have been a first generation college graduate who might have been come from an underprivileged background or lived in a rural area where the schools weren't as you know the programs weren't as available or the or their or their parents weren't as facile in education. That 3-3 might look more impressive to us than than that 3-9 for someone who who might have appeared to have had more advantage. And I, I think that's an important consideration when you're looking at candidates. Do you require the GRE or some other standardized test? We do not. So we don't require the GRE. And really the the the, the background and the heritage behind that is we we don't believe in barriers. We don't we don't believe in in anything that would sort of overly foreshorten the pool of applicants that that we could evaluate. And um, if we want to select folks that we think will return to the communities where they can make the most difference, we need to make it accessible for folks who come from those communities to be able to apply to our program. So similarly, a lot of programs have minimum clinical hours. Is that mm -hmm. also a barrier you don't require? 
We do. So, uh, you know, I think not to talk out of both sides of our mouth, but but what we think is that if if our emphasis is not going to be solely on academics, we need to make sure there's clinical strength there. Sure, sure. Life experience. And in some ways, we are still fairly old fashioned in that way where, um, you know, someone who's been who's who's shown their effectiveness in a clinical setting for a period of time can really burnish themselves into a wonderful candidate. You know, our requirement isn't huge. It's 2000 hours. So, you know, that's about a year of full-time work. Yeah, we do. I, you know, and I also, and I don't know if you agree or not, but I think where candidates are getting younger and maybe not having as much life experience and sometimes transitioning almost directly out of undergraduate, that, that clinical experience is really becoming important and precious for them to be able to quickly form up a professional identity. Yeah. And I, I think it's important to before they get the Willy Wonka golden ticket to your school to know that they really like taking care of patients because you know there's not all of it's glamorous yeah that I I agree you know when I look at a seat I, I don't I don't really look at a person. What I what I look at is the thirty or forty thousand patients they will look after in their career. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to say it. Fantastic. And and, and the last thing you want to do is is deliver a seat to somebody that isn't going to isn't going to keep their end of the bargain, which is to take great care of 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 those folks that you would anticipate they would. Let me shift gears to your role in leadership because you've been the president of the Utah. Academy of PAs. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm guessing you're very in tune to all the legislative changes going around. Where are you guys at at this point for Utah and the Practice Act and OTP and all that? Sure. So uh, I I actually follow Dave Cahey as legislative chair. So he he sort of trained me up and then he left me to it. And that was after I had I had been president of the academy. So I you know I feel like my role there was really we laid some of the groundwork for what for what we have now. And, you know, Utah is a pro-commerce state, which is has been in a fairly conservative state. That's been a good environment for a progressive practice act. And one of the things that's been really cool is uh, we have some friends in the legislature, including a very connected senator who has a son who is a graduate of our program. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, that's really been uh, wonderful to uh, have that connection to be able to um, be able to meet legislators and plan legislation. And two years ago now, essentially a bill that would create optimal team practice in Utah passed um, the House and the Senate was signed by the governor. So the way our Practice Act now operates is PAs who are practicing in Utah for the first 4,000 hours of practice, they have to have a collaborative, not a supervising agreement with a physician there's no there's no supervision ratio so one doc can can collaborate with multiple PAs between 4000 and 10000 hours a PA can collaborate either with a physician in the same essentially with the same practice scope or a physician assistant who has achieved 10000 hours that is great. And then after 10,000 hours in a particular specialty, PAs do not require a collaborative relationship. That's good. I mean, that's reasonable, right? There, in this day and age, you're still going to have supervision from a health system For sure. or, a, or a, a peer review process or something. So That's right. So scope is determined by credentialing, by you know hospital bylaws, and just by uh, sort of 
the scope of practice of the clinician. You know, interestingly enough, one of my I'm I'm getting close to completing the role, but I I'm also the the chair of the physician assistant licensing board here in Utah. So for wow. seven years, I've been the chair there. And it, so it was really interesting to transition from a role of advocacy to one of sort of more of a gatekeeper. Yeah. So uh, with the more recent legislation, I kind of had to stay on the sideline. And because the role of the board is to protect the public. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was, I was asked to give input in terms of that, the bill and that legislative process. And I was able to go up to state capitol and say, you know, in Utah, we have not had a probationer for two and a half years. That was helpful. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, when you're trying to achieve legislation like that. So we have a really good practice environment here. That's good. So you're in a unique crowd. I, I haven't met them all, of course, but uh, the people we've interviewed that are in that role it, as a chair or as a member of the governing board, uh, Jed Grant in California from Pacific University, Paula Phelps from Idaho. Um, mm-hmm. Those are the, and, and now you, you're the three that I've interviewed that. And, and of course, Randy Danielson, I interviewed uh, earlier this uh, spring and Randy was uh, in that role here in Arizona for many years as well. So sure. yeah, that's fantastic. I, I was on the, the committee for the NCCPA that would look at that data after the boards did. And you know, it's just interesting to see. There are not a lot of cases, but, you know, there's um, addiction issues can get in the way for some people. Uh, judgment. Professional misconduct. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. it's heartbreaking. I, I do think that, you know, boards don't want to revoke licenses. They want to help clinicians to be able to, you know, utilize their training and their skill. But, you know, you really do have a duty to to ensure public safety in that role. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jared, before we go, we always like to give our guests a chance if there's anything we didn't cover that you were hoping to talk about, uh, just to give you the last word. So anything else you want to share today? I I don't have anything in particular. I really appreciate the conversation. And I I guess what I would say is I appreciate the purpose of this this podcast, which is to provide information for prospective uh, candidates and to, to give them a leg up without it without it costing them anything. And I think that it's wonderful work and uh, really appreciate uh, that. And, you know, I know you're self-depreciating, but uh, I I really respect and appreciate your role in PA education, in uh, the PA profession, and you're one of the folks that I look up to. Well, that's that's very kind. I, I just got my last thing I have to say, thank you for the, the kind words, Jared. Uh, if you haven't been to Utah, I've had the pleasure of traveling it from from north to south east to west it i believe it's the most underappreciated state in the united states i haven't been to alaska yet so i might change my mind but but oh my goodness it is so beautiful and you can drive fast uh, you can the te- yeah it's great the topography here is second to none it's beautiful yeah. and uh you know we've gotten to the point where we just want it to be sort of a secret under the radar but, i get uh, you i get that and, yeah. and then your institution i mean talk about gorgeous with the you know, the Olympics having been there, the uh, Wasatch Mountains right there. It's just a beautiful place and 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 full of beautiful people. So thank you so much for letting us highlight your program and best of luck to you and the team. Please give everybody my best. It's great to visit with you. I will do so. Well, we want to thank our guest, Mr. Jared Spackman, for sharing his time and his insights on the University of Utah's PA program. This is one of the most impressive programs I've been affiliated with in terms of my visits there for different reasons. Such a great history of wonderful leadership contributions to the PA profession. Tune in next week as we speak with Dr. Arta Bakshande. Arta is a physician extraordinaire who's been leading an AI revolution at his health system, and he's going to 
tell us more about artificial intelligence and digital health as it relates to our profession. As always, you can learn more about our guests at our website, papadpodcast.com. Have a great day, everybody. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you're walking in life. And thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and perspectives expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the positions or policies of the University of Arizona.